Good morning, Impact. I love that, and I expect it every week, but today I really felt the presence of God in worship, and that helps prepare and inspire our hearts to hear His Word. So I think we're ready, but you help me out. Are you ready to hear God's Word? Yeah. All right, then turn to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're going to still be in the first chapter. And I'd say at this pace, we're clipping along a lot faster than I thought, year and a half, I'd say, and we should be through this Gospel. Not a year and three quarters as I thought, but about a year and a half. How many of you ever heard of, of Heidi and Heidi Murkoff's very popular, explosively popular book, What to Expect When You're Expecting? Yeah, mostly ladies. Russ, you too? Okay, well, I'm not even going to ask about that. But, um, you know, written for obvious reasons, I think, so that you would have a little bit of comfort and hopefully some certainty about what's coming when you're pregnant. That's why you threw me a little bit, guys, that you had read it. Maybe you want to be able to comfort your wife. I'll, I'll take you on that one. It's often referred to, this is often referred to as America's Pregnancy Bible. Um, now it's fourth edition. There's actually several authors to it. Um, when a first-time mother is expecting her, obviously, her first baby, it's written to give them clarity, peace, certainty about what's coming. In fact, it's written to tell you, you know, in the first stages, first few weeks, here's how you should feel, here's what to expect, here's what happens in the second month, third month, fourth month, and it's supposed to be, like I said, comforting. But apparently not everyone agrees. I was reading about this because I titled the message, in case you don't know, what to expect when you're expecting. It's Dr. Luke who wrote, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of Luke, and so we're using a lot of medical terms because he throws these in as we go along in the book. And this one is, this chapter we're going to see about the announcement or what to expect with the birth of two prominent people, one of them very prominent, Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man. The other one, the forerunner to Jesus Christ, the herald, the announcer, John the Baptist. So there's two big birth announcements this week. And so I thought, wow, you know, the whole Old Testament is really a book about what to expect when you're expecting the Messiah, so let's go with that. But I thought, let me check this out and see if it really delivers. And I was looking on Amazon, and I, I found that not everybody agrees that this is the book to read if you want to be calmed down and have peace about your first pregnancy. So I looked at a few of the negative reviews, and, and I'm going to share them with you right here, because they were kind of out there. Tim Sorens, in his review of the book, entitled, his review is titled, Throw This Thing Away Now says, this book is the worst book any newly pregnant woman could possibly read. It is fear-based to a degree that makes you wonder if Murkoff is intending to help you or avoid a lawsuit. According to the book, you are cursed if you do, cursed if you don't. Diets are impossible to follow, and practically everything from green tea to vitamins will cause birth defects in your kids. It's a paranoid book. And, uh, I'll skip the literary value thing. I follow my midwife's advice, and I threw this thing out. Please do not give it to your girlfriends as a gift. You shouldn't be giving it to your girlfriend anyway. Uh, you should be giving it to your wife. It may say that it's the pregnancy Bible, but it's in fact a misinformed, alarming guide to completely freak out. My anxieties did stop when I got rid of the book. Here's another one. Uh, Jay Hammond wrote this, and his title was What to Fear When You're Expecting. That's his little review of it. This book is awful. So it's subtle. You can't really tell how he feels about it. If you want to be scared that every little ache and pain during your pregnancy could be the uterus rupturing or exploding or the baby in distress, then go ahead and buy this book. My husband absolutely hates it as well. He's nervous enough already, and this book just put him over the edge. You'll be calling your midwife every five minutes if you follow the advice here. One more. This is by C. Justice, and it's entitled, Great Book for Hypochondriacs, All Others Stay Away. 
This book will scare the ever-living crap out of you if you're a pregnant mother-to-be. We picked it up due to its inexplicable popularity to find it's full of useful little tidbits like too much sugar will permanently ruin your child. And if you drink unfiltered tap water, your baby could die. That's all in caps. She's screaming this. It's like handing someone a medical journal and watching them self-diagnose themselves with a terminal illness. There's little doubt in my mind that first-time mothers and fathers would like realistic help and guidance and something as important as bringing a new life into the world. But what's clear is that it's highly debatable whether they're going to get any help at all from this book. So according to some, at least, in the um, what to expect when you're expecting category book, One thing is certain about this book, and there were 600 uh, negative reviews. One thing is certain, and that's uncertainty. One thing is certain about this book, and that is that you can probably end up a little bit more uncertain about what's coming than peaceful and relaxed uh, about what's coming. Now, compare this with the claim about another book. Compare this with the claim that I shared with you guys last week about Luke. Luke makes a claim in, in what this will do for you. And it's really a claim that could be made about the whole Bible. But Luke says about my gospel, the reason I wrote it in Luke 1, 3 through 4, follow me, he says to Theophilus, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time, really investigated, talked to eyewitnesses, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have, what? Certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. That you might have certainty. And though the stakes are high and truly important with pregnancy, they're much, much higher with things of eternal consequence, right? Where am I going to spend eternity? So the stakes are way, way more high uh, in the Bible than they are even with what to expect with your first child. Well, thank the Lord that he himself authored this how-to manual. It's, It's Luke is the vessel, but the Holy Spirit is the writer of the whole Bible. And what makes this manual, gang, that hopefully most of you are holding in your hand, either physically, I still like the written word, or electronically, that's okay. By the way, if you follow version and you look today, I think it's supposed to start this week. We don't have notes, and some of you have let me know. You know, every week, Pastor Rob, you tell me to write this down, and you give me this little card that's this big. And so I fill the whole thing up with little, when are we going to have notes? Well, supposedly this week, I don't know if you tap online, if you can get a signal in here, go to version's notes or people going through different version studies. We should pop up, and the notes for this week should be on there. Hebrews 6, 18, the second half of that verse says, it is impossible, it is impossible for God to lie. He can't do it. He cannot lie. So that's one thing. You can't put something in here and try to cover your bases. It's got to be true. And then if you just take one other verse, and we can take a million of them, but you take one other verse, Deuteronomy 32, 4, let's break this down, tells us some things of why this manual is better for certainty and peace than this manual. Says that, God is, he is the rock. That means he's unmovable, unchangeable like a rock. That's one thing. He doesn't change his opinion. You go, you know what? I thought I was right about that, but you got a good point. I think I'll change. No, God doesn't do that like we do. Next, his deeds are perfect. In other words, everything God does is flawless, perfect. How many, how many human beings can say that? Time's up, zero. Next, everything he does is just and fair. Okay, so he's completely fair. This should mean a lot to young people, teenagers, because what's their uh, favorite four words? But that's not fair. Well, God is completely and absolutely just and completely fair. He's dependable. Go on in that scripture, it says he's faithful. And then finally, he doesn't do anything wrong. It says, who does no wrong, how just and upright he is. 
Okay, so he doesn't do anything wrong, doesn't make any mistakes. He's perfect, he's just, he's fair. That makes this manual a lot better for you to find peace and certainty and confidence in life. So my question today is going to be this. How come so few Christians seem to have peace and security and certainty? I mean, all the Christians that I meet, sometimes even me, I'm going to throw myself in there, we get more worked up, more fearful about where the world's going and ethically and morally and all that politically than everybody else. Why do we get that way? Now, compare that to the resumes of other so-called experts and best-selling authors. You got Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. How many of you have ever read that? Oh, and that thing's got more holes in it than Swiss cheese. You got Deepak Chopra. It's kind of a cool name, but here's a guy that writes more basically Hindu-based spiritual books on how to live. And you know what? He's got to keep writing them to undo the things that people dispelled in the last book. He just has, has to keep coming out with them. You've got Rhonda Byron, I think is her last name, who wrote The Secret. And The Secret is the book's a scam. It's really a prosperity book. Uh, many others, Awaken the Giant, Anthony Robbins, a lot of these that make claims, but they have holes in them. They're not claims that can be backed up, completely fair, completely perfect, no wrong, completely honest. In fact, all of these and so many more that I could have listed are the spiritual equivalent of the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. They make claims on what they'll deliver, but they can't deliver. So what's the problem here? Why can't they? Well, because they give you a million different routes. Are you with me? Look up here. They give you a million different routes to get to one, one destination, but the directions are not clear. The directions are not clear. In fact, you can't take a million different routes and arrive at the same place. But that's kind of a popular notion today, isn't it? Isn't it? Like, here's the notion. People today, you want to get people riled up, just tell them John 14, 6. Tell them Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's a real argument starter, isn't it? Why? Because what are you saying when you quote that? By the way, you're not saying it. Jesus said it. What's he saying? If you want to get to the Father, if you want to get to heaven, if you want eternal life, you go through me. I am the door. I am the way. There's no end around. There aren't a lot of paths. There aren't a lot of religions. It's me, period. The world doesn't like that. Why? But that's not fair. But that's not fair. We don't like that because we don't think that's fair. We think there ought to be a lot of routes. Why? Because we think if we're sincere and we're trying to do good things, God will look, give us brownie points, and say, you go to Buddha, because that's really me in another disguise. You follow Hin Hindi or, 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 I was going to say Gollum, <laughs> but not Gandhi. Gandhi, Gollum, not really the same. But you follow that. Uh, you follow Muhammad. You follow these different paths. And somewhere they all converge and they all lead. But that's not true. And you may want comfort from that, but in the end, it's going to bring the ultimate discomfort as you spend eternity separated from God. It's not clear. It's not certain. Now, here's what I do want you to write down. It's kind of our thesis today. I'm going to bring clarity for some of you today who are, who are wrestling with Scripture, who are even believers and go, I, can't, I don't have that. Pastor, I know where you're going. I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm saved, but I don't have clarity. I mean, my faith seems weak. I seem to live with doubts all the time. Listen, you and I can find peace and certainty by responding rightly to God's promises. That's how simple I want to keep the rest of this lesson. You and I can find peace and certainty by responding rightly to God's promises. Does God make promises in this book? Yeah, there's thousands of them. There's also, there's also sayings and proverbs about a way to live your life that'll most likely end up this way. Those aren't promises, but there are actually thousands of promises that say, if you do this, God will do this. 
That's different than suggestions or ways of life. They're absolute promises. Can God lie? No. So what he says will come true. Then why do people say, I followed that and that didn't happen for me? You don't have a lot of choices in that scenario, do we? Either God's a liar or there's something wrong in us. That's it. Those are your choices, period. All right, so let's follow along. How can we respond rightly to God's promises? Number one, the Old Testament is God's what to expect when expecting book. That's the original, not this. This, not this, 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 this is the original. Here's why. There's predictions in here, 344 of them about the coming Messiah, about the forerunner, about everything to do with the Messiah that were completely, absolutely fulfilled to the letter, 344. I'm going to give you a few just to kind of grease the wheels here a little bit. I obviously, I'm not going to go through all 344 of them, but, and if you are a very fast writer, you can try to get some of these down. First of all, here's, and they're kind of taken randomly. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. That is Micah 4, 2. Tells you exactly the city. And, it, and at that point, Bethlehem was a tiny little town. So hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, it said, here's where he's going to be born, in that exact town. And the prophecy is fulfilled, if you want to read about it, in Matthew 1.20 and Galatians 4.4. 4. says he would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7.14. He'll be born of a virgin. Fulfilled in Matthew 2.1. Luke 2, 4 through 6. Said that he would come from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. Way back in the first book of the Bible, that prediction is made. Fulfilled in Matthew 1, 1. Said that he would be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. Fulfilled in Luke 3, 33. Said he would be an heir to King David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. Fulfilled in Luke 1, 33. What are you hearing a lot? Luke. Luke, even this first chapter that we're still in, a lot of prophecies were fulfilled right here. Messiah's throne will be anointed and eternal. Psalm 45, 6-7, fulfilled in Luke 1, 32 and 33. Messiah would spend a season of his life in Egypt. That's Hosea 11, 1, fulfilled in Matthew 2, 14-15. A massacre of children would happen at the Messiah's birthplace in Bethlehem. That's told about in Jeremiah 31, 15, fulfilled in Matthew 2, 16. The Messiah would be betrayed, Psalm 41, 9, fulfilled in Luke 22, 47. We can go on and on and on. There are many, many of these. I said 344. There's actually 324 to be exact. Uh, gang, my point is people should have known. I mean, it's kind of a lot. That's not what might happen. That's not, here's the following 10 scenarios, find yourself in there somewhere. That's 324 scenarios that have to happen exactly right, and they did. So if you are living in the days of Jesus and these things start to be fulfilled, so many of them just at his birth, you should have known what to expect while expecting. Unless what? Unless you're not expecting, right? Unless you're no longer waiting for the Messiah unless you no longer cling to the promises anymore, unless you've filled in the blank with your own version of an interpretation, unless you want God to come in a different way, then when it's happening right before your very eyes, you won't see it. And in fact, that's what happened when Jesus came. People didn't believe. Next thing, the Old Testament prepares us for the birth of the Messiah as well as his forerunner. Here's a few examples. The forerunner, by the way, is who? Blah, 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 blah. Who? Right, John the Baptist. Be bold. Speak up. I'm not that mean. 
First, the forerunner to the Messiah. Malachi 4, 5 through 7 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, some of you are thinking, um, somebody should tell Pastor Rob, <laughs> that's Elijah, not John the Baptist. They don't even sound alike. How could you make a mistake like that? Well, look at Matthew, or at least write this down, because there's going to be a lot of turning all over the place. But Matthew 17, beginning with verse 10, Jesus addresses this. Yes, in a way, Elijah, or in spirit, Elijah had to show up. And Jesus addressed that. And his disciples asked him, then why, you know, when he said, I'm the Messiah and all, the disciples said, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Why do the scribes say that? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. It's amazing how many people ask me about that. Well, it can't be true, and Jesus never addressed that. Never? Well, just read. It's right here. Yes, he addressed this. He's already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then his disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. In other words, Jesus was telling them that Elijah had come in the spirit and power of John the Baptist. Okay? Here's another Old Testament prophecy telling the people what to expect when expecting the forerunner to the Messiah. Isaiah 40, 3 through 5 says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Now, John, the Apostle John in, in, in the uh, Gospel of John, actually clarified this. When, he asked, when asked by the religious leaders if he himself, now this is in the, in the um, book of John, but it's actually John the Baptist. Leaders came to him because so many people were following John the Baptist. The religious leaders came to him and said, you know, you might be the Messiah. A lot of people are saying you're the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Did you know they flat out asked John the Baptist that? Because there's a lot of confusion. You know, a lot of people got some similarities here. Maybe we ought to just get this out of the way. So they asked him. And he confessed, John 1, 20 through 23, and, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Can't be any more plain than that. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, because he wasn't exactly I, Elijah, he just came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So they said to him, then who are you? We need you to give, you an, give us an answer so we can give it to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, now remember what I just read to you in Isaiah. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's me. And that's a nameless one, right? Yeah, because I'm a voice. I'm just actually speaking in spirit and in power to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, Luke is the only gospel writer who recounts the foretelling and birth of John the Baptist. So if we didn't have Luke's specific account and going to the eyewitnesses, we wouldn't have all this about John the Baptist. <clears throat> he begins in chapter 1, 5 through 20, verses 5 through 25, with the announcement of John's birth. We're going to try and cover a lot of this in the remaining two minutes that I have. Actually, I have more than that. Uh, to Zachariah's father, then in 1, 26 to 38, comes the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary, his mother, then in 39 to 56, a connection is made between the two, kind of a comparison and contrast. Now, let me tell you what I think Luke is doing here, and, I, and I, 
listened to a little bit and read a little bit of what, how many of you ever heard of John Piper? Excellent teacher, excellent teacher. And he really brings out this comparison and contrast because a lot of people read about the birth of John the Baptist, its prediction, the birth of Jesus, and they are left wondering why even include a regular man like John the Baptist with as many verses as the Son of God. Why is this even in there? It sort of takes away, doesn't it? No, it's supposed to be in there so that you and I can look at the two and say, what's wrong with this and what's right about this? Because there are promises made. There were promises made in the Old Testament, and there are promises made to both Mary and Elizabeth, Mary and Zechariah, Joseph and Zechariah, about these miraculous births. But it's the reaction of those two couples, listen to me, to what Gabriel says that you and I can learn from. It's the reaction they had to the promises that's key to whether God's promises are going to be fulfilled in your life and mine. So there's a clear pattern in Luke's presentation. Announcement to John, announcement, announcement of John, announcement of Jesus. Birth of John, birth of Jesus. With a link between the two pairs as Mary and Elizabeth, pregnant with these two unexpected children, meet each other and talk about these two miraculous births. What I think Luke wants to do with this pattern is get the reader to compare them and contrast them and see two types of belief. They both believed, but something was flawed in Zechariah's belief. So let's look at this, because here's the key about how you and I can have a more abundant life. How to respond, point number three, to God's promises. I mean, God doesn't just throw thousands of promises out in his word and say, hey, write them down, recite them, chant them, get in the lotus position, hold your hands and do all that, and magic happens. It's not like that, gang. Sometimes you go to different churches and they have you just kind of say stuff and people aren't even thinking about what they're saying, right? Anybody grow up in a church like that? Stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. Some of you grow up in a church like that? Come on, Catholics, where are you? There you are, okay. So sometimes there's reciting, and you've got to admit, sometimes, sometimes, you're not thinking about what you're saying, right? He says, this isn't meaningless stuff. Where's your heart? When I say trust me and believe, where's your heart? Are you meaninglessly reciting things, or are you really connecting? Are you really believing? Because there's a huge difference in what I will do. So remember, Luke is writing to this guy who means so much to him, this Gentile guy who either... I hate to say it, but either owned Luke as a slave and set him free or at least was his employer and set him free and let him go and financed Luke and Acts. And he's, he's got this guy on the edge and the Holy Spirit is drawing Theophilus to him, but I don't believe Theophilus is quite saved. So Luke is writing all of this to try and convince Theophilus to have the right kind of faith and just let go, Theophilus. Stop looking for so many facts. This is the last I'm going to do, then let go. And you and I can learn through this as well. Wants them to see the power of God. Wants them to see the preeminence of Jesus. But he also wants them to see the right way and the wrong way to respond to Jesus Christ. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. This contrast is unavoidable when you look at how Zachariah, Zachariah on the one hand and Mary on the other hand respond to Gabriel's promise that God is going to give them a child and make that child great. Luke clearly wants Theophilus and you and I to follow Mary's example, not Zacharias. All right, so let's look at both of them. Here's what Zacharias says to Gabriel. Now listen closely, gang, because they're going to sound similar, right? How shall I know this? So Gabriel just said, you're going to have a child. Now, some of you going, people have babies all the time. Not Zachariah, but his wife have babies all the time. So what's the big deal here? 
The big deal you're going to find out in a moment is that Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife, are kind of old. We'll get to how old in just a moment. We're talking ancient, but we'll get to that in a moment. So he responds, he says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, we're going to take a look at that word old. In the Hebrew and the Greek, it's kind of the same thing here. And it was used in the Old Testament to give you a hint. When God told Abraham and Sarah they were going to have a child, it's that same word for old, that same kind of connotation. It says, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. You know what he's basically saying here? You're talking to an angel. I'm not sure this is really going to happen. Aren't you talking to an angel? See the wings? That should be a hint that something unusual is happening here. I'm, I'm usually, I just came from the presence of Almighty God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, he's going to skip right to the punishment. Because he's looking at him and listening to his lack of belief. And he says, so here's the deal. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass. And so when he came out of the temple as his one shot to be near the Holy of Holies, he could not speak. He couldn't get his voice to come out at all. Worse than laryngitis, nothing. Just air. That was a punishment because the way he responded to this promise was wrong. Was wrong. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled. Now please get this, gang. When? In their time. Because that's really key. Because when do you and I stop believing, mostly? When do we stop believing? When enough time goes by, right? Maybe you guys don't struggle with that. I do. I will pray for things sometimes that I know it's God's one. I know He wants to do it. And then time starts going by. And then enough time goes by, I start going, Am I, is my faith not at a seven? Does it need to be a seven point? Do I need to... You know, I start thinking wrong about all this stuff. And I start thinking, maybe He didn't hear me. Maybe He's not going to do that. Why? Because too much time went by. But God's not on our timetable. He's just not. He's on his timetable. He's not in a hurry like you and I are. So Zechariah did not believe Gabriel's promise. He was in a spot, almost like Abraham. But he didn't respond like Abraham did at first. See, God came to Abraham when Abraham was a complete pagan in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. That was where he was from, a completely pagan place where they worship pagan gods. And God had grace and mercy on Abraham, and he called him out of there, and he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham was already old. He said, well, you're going to have a child. And to, to point out that Abraham believed, God said, I'm going to call you, follow me, I'm going to take you somewhere new. Abraham dropped everything in his life and followed God. That shows by action that Abraham said, I believe you, I believe you. I think you are going to do something great. Now, Abraham's faith wasn't always like that. He and his wife Sarah had their moments. But at that point, he, he reacted right. And God blessed him for it. Paul said in Romans 4.19, He did not weaken, this is about Abraham, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Remember I said I was going to address the Hebrew and the Greek there? How old was he? As good as dead. Because that's not very nice, is it? to say, but they're pretty blunt. Because he was about 100 years old when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver, though, concerning the promise of God. The what of God? The promise of God. So he reacted rightly. But he grew strong in his faith. It just got even greater as he got older, <clears throat> giving God the glory for everything he was going to do someday. So the same idea when referring to how old they were is conveyed with 
Zach and Liz, as it is with Abe and Sarah here, as good as dead. So I want you to know how old that is. You've got to get this, okay? There's middle age, like some of you, but not me. There's middle age. There's twilight years, minus the bad acting. There's old. There's ancient. And there's the walking dead. Okay? This is walking dead. They, they're, all, they're somehow alive. They're somehow still animated. They can talk, except Zach can't talk right now. But his body is dead. It is a physical impossibility for him, and especially his wife, his old wife here, to have a baby. They can't. And as we go on in this, in this Gospel of Luke, you're going to be seeing how much attention. Actually, Elizabeth had to hide herself away because it was like a freak show. It was like Ripley's Believe It or Not. People were gathering around to see, well, this pregnancy, will she make it? How in the world is she pregnant? She's never had a child. Now she's pregnant as an old, old lady. So people were watching her. It was, it was like, not like the impossible. It was impossible. So it became a big, she had to hide herself away. So Zach, short for Zachariah, didn't believe. He did waver in unbelief. And I think Luke intends for us to contrast his response to Mary's faith. And here's how I know that. Because Zachariah's wife, and you'll see this in verse 45, commends Mary in a way that sounds like a criticism of her husband. Now, this isn't for me telling you wives to criticize your husband. This is just saying you can tell that even Elizabeth could see that their faith was wrong. She said, blessed is she, talking about Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That's kind of cryptic. Mary comes in. Elizabeth says, I'm, I'm pregnant with a miracle child. I'm really old. Mary says, I'm pregnant too with a miracle child. I don't even have a husband. I've never even been with a man. So my miracle trumps yours. Yours is pretty good, but check this one out. And she's looking at Mary, who probably wasn't showing a whole lot then, and she's going, that's a lot to believe. But blessed are you because you do believe that God's going to do exactly what he said, implying that, you know, my knuckleheaded husband, he didn't believe. Ask him. No, never mind. He can't talk because he doesn't believe, and God punished him in that. So there's two different reactions to the promise here. Now, how did Mary's faith express itself? When the angel was finished predicting the miraculous birth of Jesus, Mary said in verse 34, listen, how can this be since I have no husband? Now, I know some of you are probably looking at that and going, that's the same thing Zachariah did, isn't it? Didn't he say how? Didn't she say how? So they both have weak faith. No, look at it carefully. Zachariah says, how can I know this? Mary says, how can this be? Oh, come on, Pastor. That's like splitting hairs, isn't it? I don't think so. And not only because God says it, but look at this. Zechariah asks for more evidence. In other words, he's saying, I, I know you're an angel. I know this is miraculous, but that, I, give me something else. Can you give me a sign? Give me three signs. Give me, give me four. He's like the Gideon. I'm going to put my fleece out because I'm really struggling with this. I've I got to be honest. I, I don't think you can do it. That's what he's saying. Give me more evidence. Mary asks for an explanation. Evidence, explanation. There's a difference. There's a difference. Zachariah says he can't be sure. Mary says she can't understand. Please tell me you see a difference there. Because God's okay with I can't understand. He's okay with that. He's got to be okay with it because I tell him that every day. I don't, I don't get it, Lord. I know you're slow, but I'll use you, is what he says to me. But it's a difference when somebody says, I don't believe you. I don't think you're a good guy. I don't think you always have my best interest. I've been a mockery 
And they've said to my wife that she must be cursed because we can't have a child. And so how do I know you're going to be good to me now? What's happening there? Too much time has gone by. He can't believe it. He doesn't trust God. Belief and trust are the same thing. So what am I trying to tell you guys and me too here? What's the main point here? Be like Mary. Don't be like Zechariah. Be like Mary. Don't be like Zechariah. Let's take a closer look at these reactions. All right? First, bad reaction. Here's the first one. There's three lessons I think we can learn from the contrast between them. First, it is possible, gang, to demand too much evidence before you believe God's promises. Did you know that? It's possible to just go too far. Now, I'm going to have to unpack this a little bit because that, you know, some of you are probably going, well, how far is too far and what do we do with this? Well, it's not wrong to want evidence for our faith. In fact, you shouldn't just blindly follow stuff. We saw that last week when we talked about the first four verses. It's not wrong. Otherwise, why would Luke be writing this to Theophilus and saying, I want you to be certain. I'm going to give you some evidence. It's okay, right? So it can't be wrong or, or the whole premise for Luke is wrong. But there is an evil in demanding signs beyond what? Now, here it is. Here's the key. There's an evil in demanding signs beyond what a humble and open heart would require to believe. Does that make sense? I mean, if you really want to trust and you really know you're a sinful person and you want to cry out and you want your life to change and God gives you enough and you just keep asking for more, then it may be that you have an evil heart. You're pushing it too far. God is saying, and he says in Romans 1, actually, there's enough evidence out there for everybody. All you got to do is look around, and you know there's a designer. Why? Because there's a design. You know there's a creator, because why? Because there's a creation. I mean, how many of you would walk along in the desert, you know, hiking, and, and just go for days, and then you would see a, you know, the Mona Lisa painting lying on the ground? And we, how many of you would look at that and go, man, I thought evolution was good, but look at that. Look what random chance threw together there. And would anybody be that dumb? No, you would look at a painting, right? And when you say, I wonder who the painter is. Well, creation that we look at is much more intricate than a painting. And yet society and culture and humanistic thinking is naive enough to go, I see all this beauty and design and intricate, the way that even the human body works, but I don't see a designer. Why not? Because you're so evil that you block the obvious out. That's not a matter of logic. That's a matter of evil. Romans 1 makes that very, very clear. Now, there's an evil in demanding signs beyond. Luke shows this. You can look at this later, but I'll go over it real quick. In Luke chapter 11, 29-32, Jesus responds to a crowd that was over the line. Here's a crowd that was just asking for more and more signs. And you've got to understand, Jesus did tons of signs. How many? Look at the last chapter in the book of John, where John says, if all the things Jesus did were written in books, there wouldn't be enough volumes on planet Earth to contain them. So we only know a smidgen. Jesus was doing miracles all the time. And, and in certain places, he'd do miracle after miracle after miracle, and people would go, that's pretty good. Can you do another one? No, you need to believe in me. I will with five more miracles. And Jesus kind of go, I'll give you five or six, and you'll demand seven or eight. Your hearts are hard. So here it is. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Now what just happened? The crowds were increasing. Why? Well, the implication there is they want to see the show. He's doing miracles. More and more people are coming to see the show and the miracles, but they're not believing. 
This generation seeks a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the men of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What in the world does that mean? How was Jonah a sign to the people of Nineveh? Well, Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great big fish. Not a whale, but a great big fish. And what do you think you'd look like after spending three days and nights in the belly of a great big fish? You'd smell pretty bad. There's no deodorant, trust me, that could handle that. You'd have the stomach acids. All right, confession time. How many of you have even seen two minutes of The Walking Dead, that show? Okay. Thanks for being honest. Are you shocked? Pretty shocked? Yeah. Well, I've seen it. No. The Walking Dead on there, that's Jonah. That's what he would look like. So if you go into Nineveh with these unbelieving people and you say, Behold, God is going to strike you dead if you don't repent. And when God messes with you, you end up looking like this. The people, that's the only sermon he preached. That's it. His face and body was enough. That's the sign. And the people fell on their knees. The whole city repented. And he said, Jesus is basically saying, that's all they got. I didn't even do miracles through Jonah there. He just showed himself. And the people fell down and said, we don't want that. And they believed. And he says, I've been doing sign after sign after sign here. And you don't believe. Therefore, they'll be your indictment on that day. It'll be better for them by far than you. So, Jesus is not belittling evidence for faith. He's exposing the hard and unrepentant hearts of his contemporaries because they can't see in spite of the miracles. They can't see. They're blind spiritually. And gang, this is a warning to us, lest we, like Zechariah, demand too much evidence before we will believe God's promises or put our own timetables on God. Remember, Gabriel said to Mary, with God, nothing is impossible. And it's clear from Luke's narrative that God loves to exalt his sovereign reliability by keeping his word in impossible situations. He actually loves to do that. He loves to take the weakest, most incapable people and say, watch what I do through this knucklehead. In fact, I, I've seen time and time again that God works best through flawed people. You want to know what God works really best through? Broken people. You want to know what you and I want least of anything in life? To be broken. You don't want it, do you? How many of you run to brokenness? You're like, God, torture me. God, bring me through trials. Knock me to my knees because I love that. We don't look for that, do we? What do we look for as Americans? What do we look for? Comfort, wealth, prosperity. We've even connected that with God's blessing. You can't be blessed of God unless you have all these. But you know what God looks for? He said it in the Psalms. I'm not even looking for sacrifice as much as I'm looking for a broken and contrite heart. Why? Because God loves to take people whose hearts are broken and come to the end of themselves and say, now I can do a lot through you. Because now you don't trust yourself anymore. You trust me. Now you're in for the ride of a lifetime. But see, he can't work with people with these unrepentant, unbelieving hearts. He can, but he chooses not to. So it's clear from Luke's narrative that God loves to exalt in that and keeping his word where humans can see no possible way for him to do things. So he said, I'm an old man. My wife is barren and advanced in years. I can't believe it. Let's not be like Zechariah. God wants to teach us from the text, trust me. Trust me. 
And you can almost hear, listen to me, you can almost hear the heart of Luke just pouring out as he writes this. He loves Theophilus. They become dear, dear friends. I mean, he writes Acts and Luke to this one guy, not knowing it's going to be used for millions. You can almost hear him going to Theophilus. Trust him, Theophilus. Trust him. I'm going to give you so much evidence here. Don't proudly insist on more and more and more signs than necessary. Put your whole trust in God and in his Christ and he will get you through even the worst storms of life. Take a look. I know your story. I've read it cover to cover. And I know the storms that will come. The waves will swell and the sky will darken. Though you'll fight against the current, you'll be swept away. You'll feel helpless and abandoned, and you'll wonder where I am in the midst of it all. I know this isn't the way you thought our relationship would work, but my plans are not for my comfort or yours. My purposes are always and only an expression of love. The scars in my hands are proof that love will sometimes lead you directly into the storm. Though you can't understand my plans, you can trust in one thing, that I am entirely good. You can't even imagine how good I am, and my plan for you is no different. When you shout asking where I am, know that I am right behind you, with my arms wrapped tightly around you, whispering, I will never let go. For you are the pinnacle of my creation and the center of my affection. There will come a day when I will quiet every storm and wipe away every tear. In that day, there will be no more pain or death. But until that day comes, I will be your anchor in this storm. So I know we don't like it sometimes. Sometimes God says, I'm going to lead you right through that, and I'll get you to the other side. Wait. Wait, and cling to me the whole way. So that's kind of the bad reaction. The video kind of gave you a hint as a good reaction, but let's take a closer look. Second thing we can learn through this comparison and contrast is that it's actually okay to want and to ask for explanations when we are perplexed to a point. It's okay. Mary was not accused of unbelief like Zechariah when she queried the angel. She says, how can I have a son when I have no husband? Okay, because she wasn't saying, I don't believe. She's saying, I do believe, but I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do because you're going to have to do something, right? It's the attitude of the heart. Mary saw the human impossibilities clearly as Zechariah did, but her heart did not reject the possibility in unbelief. She didn't say, I'm not moving, I'm not doing anything until you show me another sign. That wasn't there in her heart. She responded humbly and desired only to know how much or how this impossibility might be. So what do I get from this? God is never opposed to our seeking to understand his ways in history, in his word, and in our own lives. He's not opposed to that at all. In fact, the word says, study to show yourself approved. Go after it. Look for it. 
But we will never understand everything in this age, gang. You just won't. Because as Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. Say that in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. But one day we'll see Jesus face to face and everything will become clear. Gang, in fact, here's a good rule of thumb. The only acts of God that we should not try to understand are the ones he's told us to not try to understand. How's that for simple? Can you give me an example, Pastor Rob? Sure, I can give you one that we don't get and about every year some knucklehead breaks the rules and says he can understand the exact day and hour when Jesus will return, right? Who was the last nut who just did this? Some guy out in California? Who was as good as dead old, that guy? Remember him? I mean, it just happens like last year. We haven't had anybody in 2013, but there will be. There'll be somebody who says by some mathematical equation they've done, they know the exact time. There's only one problem. Jesus said, no man knows the hour. And when he was here on earth, he said, even I don't know. The Father hasn't told me yet. So are we going to figure out something that Jesus said no one knows and you shouldn't even be asking? Just live the right way and wait and trust. But don't try to figure it out. What types of things are you not supposed to know? The ones he said that you're not going to know. <clears throat> so what's the wrong kind of attitude? Well, a spirit of idle curiosity or arrogant skepticism would be wrong. But a spirit of earnest longing to know more of God's wisdom and a humble readiness to be taught something, that'd be right. I know it's subtle, but there's the difference right there. And here's the final thing. What's the overall good reaction? What if, Pastor Rob, I mess up? What if I'm like Zechariah? Then is it game over? This is probably the best part I want you guys to get. Zechariah, why did the angel come to them in the first place? Because it said, you've been blameless, and you've been praying, and asking for a child, and I'm here to say God heard your prayers. And he's answering you because you have lived blameless. Let's close with this. Not perfect, blameless. What's the difference? Pastor, I don't think I can be blameless. Blameless just means that when you do things wrong, you get it right. Blameless means you're traveling towards godliness. It doesn't mean perfection. It just means godliness. And they were so godly that an angel came to them and said, your prayer will be answered. But they responded wrong. So what do you do? The right reaction is repent and stop the unbelief. Because Hebrews tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. You want to start pleasing him again? Get the faith back in the equation. Start trusting him no matter how long it takes. And no matter how many signs along the way seem to point in the impossible and opposite direction. I've got a little bit more, but let's close with that. Let's pray. Father, who would have ever thought in the first chapter, Lord, I know you did, God, but how would we ever to believe in the first chapter of Luke there is so much for us to get ready for the rest of the gospel, Lord. So prepare our hearts, God. Our prayer in this long journey that we're undertaking, Father, is that uh, we would come awake. Father, we wouldn't, as we were singing today and worshiping you, we wouldn't just go through the motions. We wouldn't come each week seeking to learn more facts so that we might put forth a greater effort and try to believe, Lord, that we would let go instead. We would trust humbly and openly and faithfully that you are who you say you are. You have the best interest of us in mind, Lord, and that you will do great things through us for your glory and honor, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.